So good to hear the voices and prayers of God's people this morning. Uh, Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. And the title of this sermon is The Perfect Passover Lamb. Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. Every year on the 4th of July, in most cities around the country anyway, parades happen, families and friends eat together, and fireworks light up the night sky. Uh, It's quite the amazing liturgy. And the purpose of this rhythmic holiday is to remind us of American independence, that the Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence and declared that independence on July 4th, 1776. Every year we celebrate this holiday to remember and to commemorate. In today's text, we'll see two other rhythmic moments that are similar, but far more meaningful than American independence. So let's dive into the text. Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Our three main points for this text are these. Number one, the Passover. Number two, betrayal. And number three, the meal. So point number one, the Passover. I know that we briefly talked about the Passover last weekend, but to truly understand what's going on in this text in Mark 14, we have to understand Exodus chapter 12, which was read earlier in the service. Uh, We can't understand Mark 14 or the meaning of the Lord's Supper without this in the background. 
So when Mark says in verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, this is what he's talking about. The Passover meal that was commanded in Exodus chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 3 says that the purpose of all of that is this. That all the days of your life, you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Further, Deuteronomy 16 says that this Passover meal was to be eaten inside Jerusalem. So just imagine that for a moment. Uh, All of the Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem had to travel and be in the city walls to take this meal on this week. So the city is packed to the gills. It's like a Thanksgiving feast, but with over a million people in the city. And there, they're all there to remember how a lamb's blood rescued God's people from certain death delivering them out of slavery and into the promised land. That's the setting that Jesus intentionally chose to use to teach the most important lesson about himself. So, the disciples ask him, where will you have us go to prepare to eat the Passover? Verse 13, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is fascinating. Now understand that men didn't typically carry water jars. Sometimes they carried leather water pouches, but hardly ever would they be seen carrying water jars. That was usually reserved for women in this society. So, this seems to be a prearranged kind of secret code or signal that Jesus had set up for the disciples. So the question is, why would he do that? Well, when we read John chapter 11, verse 57, we see this. It says, The chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, meaning Jesus, was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. We'll see, uh, we see also in John chapter 14 through 17 that what Jesus would teach them that night was some of the most important teaching that he would ever give them. He needed a secret, quiet, uninterrupted place where they could all focus without intervention, even in the midst of what the order was in John 11. Further, it seems that he may have been keeping the location undisclosed from Judas as well, until the moment of the meal as well. So um, Judas couldn't have, have Jesus arrested just yet. But I want us to understand something here. Jesus isn't doing this out of fear. No one can take Jesus' life from him. He gives it up freely. Further, no one has authority over him that's not given from heaven. 
Jesus explicitly says both of these truths in the book of John. All of this is going according to plan. None of it is outside of Jesus' control. They found it just as he had said. And later in verse 21, we'll see Jesus say, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. More on that later. But for now, I want us to see that Jesus is following the the divine script perfectly. This isn't a tragedy. It's by plan. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter, one of the disciples who's, who's looking back on all of this, he preaches this. Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So, in Mark chapter 14, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God are happening. This is all about to happen in the middle of Passover, specifically by design. So, Passover is in the backdrop of this text. Point two, betrayal. Look with me at verses 17 through 21. It says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Again, remember this is according to plan. One of you who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. First off, we should notice what it is that Jesus does here. He uses Psalm 41, verse 9, when David is referencing his betrayal by a guy named Matthiafel. Psalm 41, verse 9 says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Betrayal by a close and trusted friend is the worst These words that Jesus spoke probably absolutely silenced the room. But he does this in an interesting way, doesn't he? He could have just come out and said, Guys, Judas will betray me. It's him, and just pointed. But he doesn't do that. Why? Look at verse 19. His intention wasn't just for Judas. He wanted each and every one of them to examine their own hearts before they took this meal. This is instructive for us, even this morning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, again, in the context of the Lord's Supper, 
He says this, he says, let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Understand this. The elements of the Lord's Supper aren't like pills that we take each week to make our souls healthy. They don't have any medicinal cure in and of themselves for our souls. We only get spiritual benefit from the elements when our hearts and our minds are right. What do I mean by that? Well, against the Roman Catholic view, the elements themselves, the bread in the cup, they're not means of grace, ex opera operato, Latin for meaning uh, from the, the work performed, from the work performed. The elements don't work simply through the motions alone of taking the bread and taking the cup. We do believe that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace in the same way that we believe the preaching of the word is a means of grace, but only as an instrument in the hands of God on a heart of faith. In his systematic theology, Burkhoff says this, he says, in answer to the question, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? The Heidelberg Catechism says, for those who are truly displeased with themselves for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmity is covered by his passion and death, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. From these words, it appears that the Lord's Supper was not instituted for all men indiscriminately, nor even for all those who have a place in the visible church of Christ, but only for those who earnestly repent of their sins, trust that these have been covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, and are desirous to increase their faith and to grow in true holiness of life. The participants of the Lord's Supper must be repentant sinners who are ready to admit that they are lost in themselves. In other words, each time we come to the Lord's Supper, every single one of us are meant to examine our hearts because every single one of us are sinners. And because that's true, it means recognizing our own sin, our own ability, like Judas, to betray Jesus. This takes humility. No one is meant to come to the table in a prideful manner, assuming that they're righteous in and of themselves. No, not at all. We come to the table humble, realizing that, that if given to our sin nature, every single one of us is capable of Judas-like behavior. In this is grace. We come not only realizing that we're sinners, but that Christ is Savior. Praise God that, that each of our sins was nailed to the cross and paid for by Jesus. For those who believe and examine themselves before taking the supper, there's sweet, sweet comfort and true spiritual nourishment in tasting forgiveness 
each and every time you participate in the bread and the cup. This is a means of grace. If you don't examine your heart, you might just go through the motions each week and miss it. Do you see that? It's not meant to be morbid introspection. It's not there to be a downer. It is there to help us understand the depth of Christ's grace to us each and every week. Secondly, in this section, I want us to see the truth of sin and its effects in Judas. Sin never advertises itself for what it is, does it? I heard this great quote from Andy Crouch a couple of weeks ago. He says this. He says, Idols promise you everything in the beginning and demand nothing. But in the end, they demand everything and give you nothing. I'll read that again. Idols promise you everything in the beginning and demand nothing. But in the end, they demand everything and give you nothing. The same could be said of sin. In the beginning, sin allures. It promises fulfillment, satisfaction, ease. But in the end, it'll kill you. Look at the progression in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Is Judas not an exact model of that progression? At this point, he is deceived. He's hardened. Sin has controlled his heart. He's going to betray Jesus to death. But I want us to see here that even this, isn't out of, outside of God's control. Look at verse 21. Even in this context, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God is sovereign over this. This is happening exactly as it is written. Yet, the second half of verse 21 doesn't ignore human responsibility, does it? He says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is part of, of God's sovereign plan, and Judas is culpable and answerable for his sin. What I mean is, on the day of judgment... Judas can't just stand up and say, I only did your will, God. I actually deserve a crown. I'm responsible for Jesus dying, and without that, no sin would be atoned for. No. He's fully culpable for his sin, even under the banner of God's sovereignty. Uh, R.C. Sproul puts this well. He says, In these events, we see the intersection between the, the secret counsel of God and the machinations of the human will. 
In God's providence, what we call the mystery of concurrence occurred. Two streams came together, the sovereign will of God and the earthly will of human flesh. He says, it is not as though God and his sovereignty coerced Judas to carry out the evil act of betraying Jesus. Rather, the sovereign God worked his will in and through the choices of his creatures. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. God brought good out of evil. Redemption out of treachery. We see this same idea in Genesis chapter 50, don't we? You remember the story. It's the story of Joseph. His brothers tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery. He eventually ended up overseeing the entire land of Egypt and saving everyone. And look at what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. After all of that, he says this. He's, saying, he's talking to his brothers at this point. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see that? God's ways are higher than our ways. We're not going to go down the whole rabbit trail of the problem of evil right now. But think about the cross in light of this. Was the cross an act of real evil? Yes. But was it part of God's plan of ultimate good to redeem the world? Yes. Same with Judas. As Jonathan Edwards would say, he acted according to his strongest inclination. We all do. He did exactly what he wanted to do. And he's responsible for that. And God is completely sovereign. Never out of control. There's mystery in that. But that's the absolute truth. Now, for the main course of the passage. Point three, the meal. Look with me at verses 22 through 26. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So if you came uh, to our Passover Seder this year, uh, a lot of this will be familiar. Remember that this meal that Jesus is celebrating, as we said earlier, is the Passover meal. And it's celebrated each and every year to remember Exodus 12. And this meal was very particular. It had very, a very specific liturgy that happened on cue, exactly the same every year. To begin with, there were four cups that kind of give structure to the meal as a whole. These four Cups represented the four promises that God gave in Exodus chapter 6, 6 through 7. 
So Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the four cups represent the four promises of deliverance from that passage. Cup one, I will bring you out. Cup two, I will deliver. Cup three, I will redeem. And cup four, I will take you and make you my people. So the first cup is taken and drunk, actually before the meal even begins. It's in the context of blessing and remembering when God brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. Next came the presentation of the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the vegetables, and the fruits. Again, if you've been to a Passover Seder, you know that each of these elements is very symbolic and meant to help them remember a specific aspect of the Passover and the Exodus. So, in the context of Mark 14, the disciples are already primed to understand meaning in each bite that they ate. And at this point, before the meal was eaten, the youngest child in the room would typically ask the traditional question. Have them stand up and ask this question. Why do we eat these foods on this night? Great question, right? In answer, the head of the house on this specific night in Mark 14, Jesus, would then tell the story of God's grace to his people in the Exodus. Theatrically, almost, he would walk through Exodus 12, recounting each of the plagues, explaining what God miraculously did. Again, if you've never been to a Passover Seder, they're a blast, and you learn a lot. So in response to this part of hearing about all the plagues and all of the miracles, the participants would then sing the Hallel Psalms, specifically Psalm 113 through 115. And then the second cup is taken. Following the second cup, and just before the meal was eaten, Unleavened bread was lifted up with these words. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Now, after that proclamation, as the bread was broken and passed around and eaten, this was normally done in absolute silence. But here, Jesus goes off the script for the first time. Where it would normally be silent, Jesus says, Take, this is my body. In other words, I am the Passover bread. Can you imagine that? Just before this, he's announced his betrayal by one of them, and now he's saying, this bread of affliction is him. Can you imagine taking all of that in? 
he would be afflicted? The victorious son of man from Daniel 7 would also be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Yes. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 8, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He's the bread of affliction. Immediately after this bread was eaten, they would eat the main course, the Passover lamb. Remember, it was this lamb's blood that saved God's people from certain death in Exodus 12. Jesus was that perfect Passover lamb. And after taking that bread and eating this meal, he would take up the third cup, the cup of redemption, remember, and go off script again. Verses 23 and 24. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. That's normal. Verse 24, though. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Bringing in uh, the Gospel of Luke and 1 Corinthians, Jesus tells them to eat and drink in remembrance of him. The original meal, if you remember, was meant to remember what? Passover. He's transforming it to remember him. Before we get into the details of what he meant in verse 24, can we just stop and acknowledge, similar to last week, that unless he is who he says he is, this is crazy. Sam Storms puts this well. He says, What Jesus requested and indeed commanded his followers and friends to do subsequent to his death is nothing short of shocking. It is one thing to desire that your memory be preserved by your loved ones and that they continue to honor and esteem you throughout the remainder of their lives. But it is altogether something else to command that your friends, family, and followers gather together regularly at a meal, not only in your name, but with you as the sole and exclusive focus. Jesus commanded his followers every time they broke bread together to make him the central point of their celebration and to recall and retell his life and death. Were anyone um, to make this request of me prior to their death, I would probably conclude 
that the proximity of their demise had afflicted them with delusions of grandeur and megalomania. Yet, this is precisely what Jesus commanded that each of his followers do in memory of him. Again, there's no room for Jesus just to be a good man. What he claimed and what he commanded is radical, even crazy, if he isn't the Son of God. Do you see that? Each time we take the Lord's Supper, we're putting Christ at the center of our focus. And we're affirming and even acknowledging him to be who he said he was. So the question we've been asking over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Mark, who is Jesus? He's the better Passover lamb. He's the bread of affliction. He's the cup of redemption. The one whose blood saves us from sure and certain death. So each time we take the Lord's Supper, we're not remembering Passover anymore. We're remembering Jesus. The Passover, even though it was a miraculous event where God really did rescue his people, that was meant to point to Jesus, who could rescue us eternally. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. He took up the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He's using covenantal language. But what's he talking about? Well, let's rewind back to the book of Jeremiah. This was our assurance of pardon today. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, he, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, my blood is the seal of the new covenant. It's what will forgive iniquity and cause sin to be remembered no more. How is that even possible? Because again, he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Further down in the text from where we read earlier, Isaiah 53 verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus' blood is the new and better covenant. He bore the sin of many. Notice that. 
Many. Not all. Whether it's Isaiah 53, or Hebrews 8, or even the Passover itself. The blood doesn't provide universal atonement, does it? In the Passover, the blood of the lamb didn't cover everyone on the block, or everyone in the city, or everyone in the world. It covered the specific houses where the doorposts were painted by the blood. The blood shed was purposeful and specific. It accomplished exactly what it was intended to. And not one single drop of it was wasted or inefficient. Verse 24 of our text, And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many. Mark 10, verse 45, you remember. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who are those many? Those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation. That's who his blood was poured out for. That's who his life was a ransom for. For those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. If that's you today, rejoice in that. Jesus' blood has redeemed you and rescued you forever. You eat and drink to celebrate that each and every week to the glory of God. Rejoice in that. And if that's not you, if you've never decided to follow Jesus, you can today. The Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. You don't need the Bible to tell you that, do you? You know that by experience that that's true. We're all broken people. But the good news is that you can be made new. You can have new life and be saved from sure and certain eternal spiritual death. You can do that through placing all of your hope on Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb. And that's another aspect of what we're doing each and every time we take the Lord's Supper. We're looking forward in hope. Notice this. Remember, I told you that the Passover meal had how many cups? Four. What cup did Jesus just drink? The third. And then, in verse 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He opts out of the fourth cup. It's an unfinished meal. In other words, the time of fellowship with Jesus isn't ended. It's extended until he comes again. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, that fourth cup, don't drink it. Save it for later. I'll be back. Yes. He would, in fact, die for their sin. A gruesome and bloody death. This was a promise that he wasn't finished. They'd drink with him, new, 
in the kingdom of God. And so will we. Again, each time that we take this meal, we're boosted with hope as we look forward to that day. Finally, in verse 26, Jesus proceeds to sing the traditional hymn, Psalm 116 through 118. Isn't this meal rich? It's instructive. It's full of grace. It's heartwarming. Spiritually nourishing. It's not meant to be taken lightly. It helps us to remember as a forgetful people. It unifies us as God's people. It gives us hope for when the kingdom will be fully realized. All of that in a loaf and a cup. Let's pray.